We find ourselves here in Luke, uh, and we have looked now, we've been back in Luke for two weeks, looking at passages that focus on ultimate issues. So we've looked at two passages that, that talk about prayer, the persistent widow, and then the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector and their prayers. And their prayers, as we've talked about the last two weeks, were, were about things that are of ultimate importance. It, we, we are called to pray about uh, health issues and you know, jobs and relationships and those kind of things. Those are things that we're called to do. It's part, that's a biblical thing to do. Uh, but what we find here, and continuing with that theme, is this focus on things that are ultimate. And there's some level of agreed upon uh, foundation for the direction that, that we should be heading. So that when this ruler comes to Jesus and says... What must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, there is some agreed upon need and desire for this being, being ultimate uh, goals. And, and having some of that agreement, some of that understanding is helpful. Jesus will unpack that. But, but you, you know, if we're to enter into conversation, uh, we often need to have some level of understanding of what we're talking about, right? What the, what the goal is, what the, uh, the end of our endeavors is. I... I Dan talked about this being uh, cool weather and kind of feeling warm, the, his first sweater of the season. And, um, you, you know, this comes over halfway through or about halfway through the football season. I love football and uh, I, I love yesterday the, feeling this weather and watching football. And uh, one of the things that's always interesting about watching football is the different commentators uh, that always have just lots of really good things to say, right? Um, there are a few that aren't like, what are you talking about? Uh, but a lot of times it's like, okay, uh, you know, you, uh, I don't know if you ever watched at the beginning of a game, the keys to the game, right? And, and they, they might be just a little bit twisted, but they're all ultimately, you know what needs to happen here is the Colts offense needs to be able to do better than the Texans defense. <laughs> and the, uh, the, the Colts defense needs to hold the Texans offense to fewer points than the Colts' offense scores. Um, that's the key to the game, right? You, you, you know in a, a sporting event what the end is. It's to score more points. So the team with more points wins. Oh, they're on this drive. They, they'd really like to get some points out of this drive. They, they'd really like to score a touchdown here. Of course they would like. That's, that's the game, right? Everybody knows that this is the, the goal in the game, right? And, uh, and so it's, it's sometimes commentators are just... You know, they've got to say something. They're getting paid to say something. Um, but it is helpful that we, we all know what is supposed to be happening. And now we're talking about here we have this ruler and we have Jesus and the disciples listening in. And, and uh, we'll, we'll just look a little bit at the, uh, the part that's let the little children come to me. But it is this end goal of the, there's different language used. Inherit eternal life. There is entering the kingdom of God. So we find that in both of these stories. But Jesus says it in the first one, in verse 17, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So there's this end, this goal, of, and, and these things, they, these are communicating the same thing. Entering the kingdom of God, having eternal life, uh, experiencing God's treasures. This is the end, right? This is the goal that Jesus has made clear in all of his ministry, in all that he does, both before this and after this, that the end is the kingdom of God. 
And we've looked at that a little bit already. When back in the parable of the persistent widow, she's praying for ultimate justice, for all things to be made right. She's not just praying for things along the way. She's praying for ultimate justice. That's the picture that we find there. And then the Pharisee and the tax collector, they're talking about their position before the Lord, their relationship with him. These are ultimate things, and they're all connected to experiencing his kingdom. We talk about it in terms of salvation, of of, uh, forgiveness of sin being necessary and a part of that, our relationship with the Lord being made right. That's the, that's the goal here. And we see two, there are going to be two points. This is really simple, really easy to follow. We have two options. We trust in not Jesus. That's point number one. And you might be able to guess what the second one is. It's trust in Jesus. So, uh, you know, this is really, really difficult uh, to remember here, these two points. Let me, let me pray for us as we look. Lord, meet us here in this time that we might be filled with your hope and your work in such a way that we are moved to more and more trust in you and not in other things. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first point is trust in not Jesus. And we see the, the ruler, uh, sometimes referred to as the rich young ruler, the, the ruler uh, is doing this in a couple of different ways. Uh, the first thing that he's doing is he's trusting in his self. He's trusting in his, his own ability, trusting in the fact that he's a good guy. And, and he is painted in every way as a good guy. There's, he's, he's not the lawyer that had come to Jesus before and was trying to test Jesus. Uh, he, he's not painted as a hypocrite. He's, he's painted as a guy who uh, is somebody who follows the law, who has been blessed in his life. He's, uh, he's the guy that his family and his friends and his co-workers and his community, they would say, oh yeah, that guy, he's great. That, that's the picture of who this is. And and uh, so when he, when he goes to Jesus, he's, he also seems to be asking a very genuine question. Again, not one to trick. He's, he's what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What, what do, how, do I, how do I assure myself that I enter the kingdom, that I enter relationship with the Lord, that I have salvation? What does that look like? What do I need to do? And, uh, and Jesus responds. And he, he responds with... Um, we see in other accounts of this, he responds with love. He responds uh, with care. And so that e- even when the original hearers would have heard this and they would have heard the, the ruler say, I've, I've done the commandments. Jesus says, keep the commandments. And he's like, I've done that. Now, the commandments here are, uh, this is this, essentially the second half of the Ten Commandments. It doesn't start with the, uh, what we some call the first table or the, the Godward-focused uh, commandments of uh, not having any other gods before you and not creating any idols and not using the Lord's name in vain. These are the, the people-focused uh, uh, commandments. And he's like, I've, I've done that. I've, I've kept those. And, and, and by all account, uh, he seems to have done that. And Jesus doesn't even challenge that. He doesn't even challenge the goodness of this guy. Now, I think he could. And we know that from other things that Jesus has said. Um, the, the fact that uh, when he says, do not murder and do not commit adultery. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Jesus addresses both of those things. And it's probably true. I, mean, I think we can certainly assume that this ruler has not killed anybody and not committed adultery. But Jesus has said, actually, the issue goes deeper than that. Our, our hearts and the sinfulness of your rebellion as people is deeper than that. And if you have 
lusted in your heart, you've committed adultery. And if you have hated in your heart, you've committed murder. He, he expands the, the implications of the Ten Commandments. But, but Jesus doesn't, doesn't feel a need to go there. He, he essentially, okay, let's assume that you have done all of the law as you think you have perfectly. Okay, that's fine. Let's, let's assume that, he says. Um, then he is highlighting, actually, the, the part of the Ten Commandments that were assumed. The, the, the beginning, the Godward-focused stuff. Because he, he says there's one thing that you like. And it's this really hard statement for uh, the ruler. Jesus tells him to sell everything that he has. To give it to the poor and to come follow Jesus. And he's getting at something. He's getting to the fact that he's trusting in something else. One, he's saying, first he's saying, all that you do, all of your righteousness, all of your good works, it's not enough. That's not enough. You still lack something. So trusting in yourself is not sufficient. This is just picking up on the same theme that Jesus hits at again and again. And he he talked about it last week in the Pharisee of uh, the, the... the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, when the Pharisee is so sure and certain of all the things that he does right, in the end, he's not the one justified, we remember from last week. So this ruler and all of us, we can't do enough. We can't get our theology and our rules right. And Jesus is actually pushing against the, the very question that's asked in the beginning, what must I do? Let's just remember right, right before this, he said the, the, there were children coming to him and that to receive the kingdom, you have to do so like a child. And here in Luke, we, we see this uh, account in other places, but Luke actually even says in verse 15, now they were bringing even infants. It wasn't just children, it was infants. And if we know anything about infants, it's that they need some help. They, they, they do not live on their own. They are completely helpless. They are not self-sufficient. The ruler is in complete contrast to that. He's a guy who's got his life together. He's wealthy. He's successful. He keeps the law. He's respected. Uh, He is, like, if anybody can be self-reliant, it's him. That's in contrast to an infant who has no ability whatsoever. And Jesus is hitting again and again and again. You are not able to save yourself, no matter how good you are. And, and, this is true. I mean, Jesus is assuming particular standards here, but this is true whatever standards we set up for ourselves, whether they're Christian standards or they're cultural standards or another religion standards, nobody lives up to them. We always fall and fail at some point. I mean, this is just part of living life is that we're, we're, we often stumble through it and we grow through it, hopefully. But whatever the standard is, we're, we're not able to live up to it. So, in this idea of relying on self, of relying on the, the righteous deeds, of thinking about the, the Ten Commandments, talking about eternal life and the kingdom of God, they're, they're in this really theological realm. But then Jesus is beginning to, to push farther down into the very uh, reality of life and what it means to apply theological truths. Because he's saying it actually affects life. It affects it in deep ways and, 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 and to the degree that it might affect the your need to sell everything and follow Jesus, to give up certain things in our lives. And and as we begin to ask the question, or hopefully regularly ask the question, you know, what's our end? What's our goal? Then we can think theologically, but we can also ask the question, what does it look like 
for this to play out. Because Jesus is also saying, not only are you trusting in yourself, by asking this question, he's saying you're trusting in your circumstances. And particularly in this moment, the ruler's financial circumstances. So he's like, okay, you've got your theology right, to some degree. Or at least he's just assuming, okay, but there's something even bigger going on. And that it's that you're actually not trusting in the Lord. You're trusting in money. You're trusting in your wealth. You're trusting in your financial circumstances. And there's this question for us. I think there is a way in which Jesus regularly points out the danger of wealth. But he's, he's really pointing out anything that we might find our hope in other than Jesus. Anything, I mean, if we think about what is the thing that if it were taken from you, would uh, tempt you to not follow Jesus, that would destroy you, even. It, it, Luke even doesn't po- point, paint wealth itself. He paints it as dangerous, but not as evil or bad in and of itself. Mm-hmm. He, he talks about it at least four times in his account, Luke, Acts, really two parts of one story. Uh, he, he talks about wealthy people without disparaging them or talking about their need to, to sell their things. There's Joseph of Arimathea at the end of Luke, and then you get into Acts, and there's Barnabas, and there's Lydia, and there's centurions, and uh, they're just, they, they have wealth, and he's, this is part of their story, right? So he, he, he's also not saying, just as a side note, that this call of Jesus for the ruler to sell everything he has, to give to the poor, and follow him, this is not a normative statement. And that means it's not, for it to be normative would be required for everybody. So he's actually dealing with this ruler's heart. Uh, And at the same time, to be clear, he is noting some difficulty, some dangers in wealth because it is such, so easily trusted in. We so easily trust in our financial circumstances. We find hope there. And uh, he is pushing against that. And, and particularly so in our uh, American life. I mean, just the reality of, you know, we're, we're, the American dream is that we would be financially successful. The pursuit of happiness as, as this foundational thing to who we are as Americans has actually become uh, not only pursuing happiness, but that we uh, demand that we should have happiness. And then we, we often then conflate the American dream and Christianity and we put them together and we think that following Jesus means that, that everything should go well for us financially and otherwise, that, we, that everything should be comfortable. And, and part of the reason that that's such a temptation for us is because in the scope of both the world now and certainly history around the world is that we've got it pretty good. Now, we, we, we deal with this, okay, how do we think about wealth and where, where do we fall in that? Are we wealthy? Are we rich? Um, and, and we can certainly find people. I mean, uh, Fountain Square Presbyterian Church isn't this church that's just full of wealthy people and like in, in terms of what, we're, what we think about when we hear wealth, right? Because we have these pictures of either churches or people that just have tons of money, right? Um, and so we think, oh, I'm, I'm not. But if we think about ourselves in the scope of history and, and around the world now, we're pretty, we got things pretty good. And, and it can be easy to trust in those things. And so it could, it could go as far as the prosperity gospel that, that God promises us health and wealth if we follow him. And that is 
I hope that if you've been around Fountain Square Press for any period of time, uh, as we look at the Word of God, that is not the promise. And uh, there is going to be struggles and pain, uh, and, and we're often even invited into that in following Jesus. But, but we so quickly go there, and maybe it's not as far as the prosperity gospel. Maybe it's just, but I really, you know, I've been faithful to go to church, and I've cared for people, and why are things hard, and I'm not getting the job I want, I'm not having the financial security I want, or I'm not having the comfort or the happiness that I want, because we think that we're owed it by God. Jesus is pushing hard against that. And maybe it's not money. Maybe there are other things that become what are essentially for us functional gods or idols. So got the theology right, but clearly for this guy, for this rich young ruler, his functional God, what has become an idol for him, not, not a statue that he's created, but something that he's put before God is his money. What would it be for us? Reputation or job, success in, one of the, in relationships or uh, in community. There are all kinds of things, and they're, they're good things, right? Even family. Good things that can become ultimate things. They are idols. They are functional gods, even if they're sometimes pursuing something good. Um, the Lord of the Rings, you may have read or seen these movies. There is uh, the ring that's the center of uh, the story, uh, the ring of power, Sauron's ring of power. And uh, it is very powerful. You can do a lot of things with it. But it so clearly corrupts folks. It takes people, even their good desires, and it twists them. So if somebody gets it and they want to free a particular group from slavery, or they want to protect their homeland from destruction, or they want to bring justice for wrongdoers. What it does is it, it makes that thing so ultimate that they are willing to destroy everything else and everyone else around them in order to get to that end. It, it takes something that is good, and it makes it ultimate, and every, there's, there's cost all around. And, and this is what we regularly do. This is just our... Are often our temptation is to take good things and make them ultimate things and to twist it in such a way that it destroys things around us. And Jesus is pushing against that because he's saying the ultimate thing is him. Because the reality is, with all of his riches and all of his uh, righteousness, he's not able to enter the kingdom of God. And so Jesus goes on as he's explaining this. He says, uh, he says, how difficult is it, in verse 24, for those that have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the, the disciples are incredibly surprised. They, they don't know what to do with this. Who can be saved? There's just, there's, uh, we, we see the surprise even more in other accounts and other gospels. But it's, wait, wait, what? The, they would have seen financial blessing as a blessing from God. That's how they were thinking at the time. Wait, if he can't be saved, then, then who can? That's the, they're, they're surprised by this. And he says, it's impossible. It's, 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 it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And if you've ever seen a camel or the eye of a needle or together, it's not possible. And, and to be clear, I, I heard in youth group, so if you've grown up in the church, I heard in youth group growing up that there was um, a... And there's no 
historical or archaeological uh, study to support this. Um, but there was a gate outside of Jerusalem that when the main gate was closed, it was really small, and you had to take everything off the camel, and it had to scooch down and wiggle through the gate. It was really hard. And the idea is, it's really hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And that's not a biblical theme either. And Jesus makes it clear later when he says what's impossible with man. It's impossible. The, the picture from scripture is it's not possible. It's as hard as it would be for an actual camel to enter the actual eye of a needle. It is not possible. I mean, it's the same thing we see in Ephesians 2, that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. It doesn't say we're really sick or maimed, hurt really bad. No, we're dead. And when you're dead, you can't do anything. It's impossible to get life when you're dead, unless there's an outside force that is able to raise what is dead to life. And that's what Jesus does. And that's what God does here. That's what he's promising here, that all the righteousness and all of the wealth and all the things, none of that can get you into the kingdom of God. None of that can bring you salvation or fulfillment. But what is impossible with man is possible with God Verse 27, this incredible promise, this incredible hope that we have from Jesus in sharing this. And so then the call is to trust in him. There, and we could have just, I could have listed any number of things that would fall under the circumstances, financial or reputation or job or whatever it might be. There are all kinds of things that would fall into that. But the call is just period to trust in Jesus. Here's the one. As we're trying to enter the kingdom and the age to come, to have eternal life, Jesus, as Ephesians 1, tells us the one who reigns both in this age and in the age to come, he is the one that we look to. So that when, when Jesus tells him, one thing you still lack in verse 22, he says, I've done all these things. He says, one thing you still lack, that you, and, he, and he tells him to sell all this stuff and come follow me. What he's saying ultimately is you, the thing that you lack is me. The thing that you lack is Jesus. And he's already, he's already hinted at the fact that he is God, that he's the ultimate thing. The, the ruler comes to him and says, good teacher. And that would have been a surprise. So you don't normally call, in this culture, you wouldn't have called a, a rabbi good. Because as Jesus notes, only God is good. But he doesn't say, he, he asks why, because he's kind of highlighting the fact. He doesn't say, I'm not good. He actually embraces the fact that he is because he is the second person of the Trinity. He is God himself. He is the one that brings true goodness into this world. The one thing that you lack is to follow me. He's getting at what is theological because he's making it clear that those first three commandments that were assumed to uh, not put other gods before him, uh, to, to not make idols, not use his name in vain, which is basically using God for our own purposes. It's not just talking about actually saying the word God in the inappropriate place. Uh, it's, it's speaking to using his name for our own purposes. And, he, and he's highlighting this, that, uh, that the need is to, to make God first. And that means making Jesus first. The solution was to trust in Jesus and not in money and not in his own ability. And again, contrasting to the infant the infant who can't do anything. This is how we are to come to Jesus, to come to the kingdom of God like uh, an infant. And, and there is a bit of a test here this, to the ruler. Are you willing to, to give it all up? And again, the question for us is what would it be for us? It, it, you know, what if the question came to us? What if the Lord said to us, 
Sell all your possessions, give to the poor and follow me. What if he said, give up your job? What if he said, uh, you, you know, we heard of the Haitian missionaries that were uh, kidnapped. And I actually don't know the full story there. But there are places where to follow Jesus is to give up family. And fortunately, we live in a place where that's not the case for us. But there are places where that's happening. We've prayed regularly for Pastor Wang Yi uh, in, in China. And uh, we have prayed for the fact that he's in jail and he's been separated from his family. There, there are those that to follow Jesus is to give up family, to leave. But the question might be for us, is it, is it some level of reputation? Is it some level of financial gain? And, and if it did mean that, how would we respond? Would it mean giving up, you know, just that question of finances? Are we willing to give to the Lord, to his work? Or is everything that we have, does it come to us? Do we, do we hoard it? We, we talk about the fact that giving isn't just this opportunity to take care of the logistics of the church. It's actually worship to the Lord. It's, it's stepping into the recognition that it's his and, and not ours. That, that's a question that we could ask ourselves. Are we willing to give up uh, finding our identity? And, uh, and this is significant in our culture where we're finding identity in all kinds of places. People talk about finding identity from within. And, and here we see our identity and our very, the center of our lives, it's found in Jesus and in him alone. Are we willing to, to give up our connections in other places if that's what we're called to? Are we, are we willing to look at God's word to us and say, ah, this, is a, this is a hard thing that he calls me to, but I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to live differently in my relationships with people because of what he calls me to. Now, oftentimes what we do with that is like, oh, I love the idea of Jesus as Savior, and I'm going to come trusting him, but uh, this part of Scripture I don't really like. This thing that it tells me uh, about my sexual life, I'm not really comfortable. I don't like that. I'm not willing to give that up. This thing that it tells me about my finances, I don't really like that. I'm not willing to give that up. This thing that it's calling me to in this particular moment, uh, I'm not really comfortable with that. Um, and, And here is this challenge that Jesus is giving. And he's not saying, get it together so that I love you, but he's saying, if you've experienced my love and my care, then are you allowing it to affect your life? Are you actually trusting, changing the way that you live and do? And not just saying, not just giving intellectual assent of, oh, I love Jesus, I trust in him, but actually allowing it to affect our lives. It's actually stepping forward in faith and taking actions with the way that we spend our time, spend our money, enter into relationships, all of that changes if this is true, if we've experienced his love. All the words and affirmation of the New City Catechism or the Apostles' Creed, those things do matter. And I do believe those things shape us, and that's why they're a part of our worship. But those things lead to to a life that's different. Our 10-year anniversary, we took a trip, and I learned that there was a place about an hour away where I could bungee jump off of a bridge. So I'd seen places where just like a tower and a parking lot and a lot of money. I'm like, okay, this is, this is I want to do this. Uh, I uh, wanted to bungee jump for a long time. And, uh, and I, I learned, you know, it was a safe place. They'd never had any accidents. And I watched a bunch of people do it. And they were very precise with it. There was a, if you wanted to, they, they, they would weigh you beforehand and they could adjust everything that if you wanted to, you could dip your head in the water or like you could go down to your waist. Uh, if you, I, didn't, I didn't want to do any of that. Uh, I wanted to, it was actually pretty cold. I wanted to stay dry. So they set it for that, right? And, uh, and surprisingly, I thought there was going to be like a full harness and all this. They just had like this webbing strap that they 
pull tight around your ankles. And, and that, that's it. And they just kind of, you know, the tension pulls it tight. And I'm like, okay, I've said I, I trust this. Uh, but the reality came where I'm standing on the edge and I have to make a decision. If I really trust it, am I going to jump or am I going to walk away, right? And I jumped in those first few moments. Like the only th- thought that I had in my mind was, this is not right. Uh, I, I'm not a screamer, but I'm like, this is, this is wrong. Uh, until I started to feel the tension of the bungee catch, right? Uh, and then I was like, okay, yeah. Uh, but it, it took, I, the actual trust was actually jumping off. My feet were right together, so I wasn't stepping off. It was actually jumping off. That was the, uh, the moment where it's like, okay, I've said I think this is safe. And I've watched other people do it, but actually stepping off. And so the, the question for us is, are we, are we willing to step off? Step into giving, step into uh, taking time. And part of that's even, you know, you're, you're here. Step, taking time to commit to worship and allowing worship to shape you. Uh, community group, t- taking time. There's all kinds of ways in which this question becomes, are, are we really trusting what, what Jesus says? Are we trusting that to follow him is good? Because that is is the ultimate, what he's saying. It might be good in a different way than we expect it, but he is promising incredible benefits because he says, after Peter says, we've left homes to follow you, he says, truly I say to you, there's one, there's no one who has left house or wife or brother or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and the age to come eternal life. He's giving really big promises here. He's giving huge promises. He's, he's giving the promise of treasure in heaven, verse 22, that you will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. He's saying there's something worth it here. There's something worth sacrificing some of the other things going on in your life to experience me. And one is eternal life in the age to come. There is that hope of, of again, the persistent widow praying this picture of praying for justice, for God to return, for Jesus himself to return, to make all things right. This eternal, ultimate hope, that's one of the promises. But he says more than that. He says, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of things that are difficult, that there is many times more in this time. Don't, let's not skip over that. You have left house and wife and brothers and parents and children for the sake of of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time here. And I, as I look around this room, I think that's, this is part of what he's talking about. Brothers and sisters, spiritual fathers and mothers. This is one of the things that's offered is the people of God. We've been talking a lot about the people of God together. Talking about you, you leave your family, you receive here and now. There's blessing. And it doesn't mean it's always easy. Sometimes it's hard. All family is that way. But there's a promise of something good and beautiful here. And it's not a promise of everything's going to be great. You're going to have all the wealth that you want. If you give $10, you're going to get 100 back. That's, that's, not, that's not what he's saying here. But he's saying, along with Paul in Romans 18, that his present sufferings, even the sufferings, are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So there's a call to come to Jesus, to his people, to pray, to worship, to read his word, to do his word. And in this account, in Luke's account, the, the rich young ruler 
has not walked away. This is consistent with a lot of Luke's stories. Is uh, In the end, it appears as though the, the ruler is standing there and he has a decision to make. Is he going to walk away? Or is he going to give it all up to follow Jesus and find an ultimate treasure? Because the reality is, it's just trusting in Jesus. It's his work. It's not ours. That none of the things that we trust in that are not Jesus, none of those things will satisfy. They will all fail us in the end. But Jesus gives us ultimate hope because of the work that he does. Let's pray.